Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good morning, everybody. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Galatians. As Mark had mentioned, um, elders have been working through a lot of the feedback and um, dialogue that we've been able to have as a congregation over the past month, and that has been a joy and a privilege. Uh, And one of the things that we recognize is there are some uh, rather immediate needs, thinking about scheduling and all that kind of stuff with facilities. But there's also a a greater need for us to clarify why we exist as a community. And so we've been engaging in that conversation as well. And one of the things that we have come to um, a spirit-led conviction of is we exist to make disciples who make disciples. And, And it would be our vision, and this kind of scares me to say this because this is only work of the Spirit. I can't, like, manufacture this in my own life um, apart from God's working in my life, but we would love to see um, third-generation disciples at First Baptist Church in the next three years. And here's what I mean by third-generation disciples. I I spoke about this briefly at one of the uh, Q&A sessions we had. Um, Third-generation disciple is this. It it doesn't mean, like, third generations in your family or something like that. That's, That's good, too. Third-generation disciple is essentially, I share the message of Jesus with someone else. They come to faith, and then that person then shares with someone else, and then that person shares with someone else. It's this idea of multiplication uh, rather than addition when it comes to uh, being hearers of the word and being sharers of the word. And I'm really excited for what God has for us. And um, over the course of the next month here, um, I I have an incredible privilege to travel with one of our missionaries uh, to one of the locations that he works with in in doing this very thing. It's part school, it's part work uh, that that I'm going with, but I'm going to be able to see in a totally different context um, what it means to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples as a part of a grander vision of what God would want. And really what we see in the book of Galatians is a local church, and it's a local church that has started from someone who has shared the gospel And then they have then, uh, as they've shared the gospel, that person has shared the gospel and gradually, 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 the text says it this way in the book of Acts, that, that the word of God went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And every Jesus follower had an important part to play in that. Each one of you, as followers of Jesus, you have an important part to play in sharing what God is doing in your life with the people around you. And that is like a, that, that, that's a holy weight to bear in the sense of that gives us purpose and responsibility in our life. But as we're going to talk about today, true life means to be, is meant to be lived in Christ. Even as we sang this morning, um, the power of the Holy Spirit in our life to give us purpose and direction and power for living is so fundamental to the Christian experience. Paul's going to say it this way, and we'll look at this in a few weeks. Um, uh, He's going to say, walk by the Spirit. He intended for us to be people who who don't just um, walk in our own strength, but walk in the power and the provision of God. And that's how we pursue all things that are important in this life. That's how we're called and intended to pursue these things. So, um, 
We'll talk more about this in the future. Uh, let's jump into the text. There's just a little bit of where we're headed. And as we begin to make more um, decisions and recommendations about where we go from here, we want it to be in that framework. How do we help us as a church make disciples who then have people who make disciples who make disciples? That's where we're headed. Um, years ago, my wife and I had the incredible trip to, uh, to travel overseas. We got to go to the biblical lands. And on the way back from this trip, um, we had the unexpected joy. It was a little scary at first because we get to the airport and they didn't have a boarding uh, uh, ticket for my wife. And we just come from two weeks of traveling the Holy Lands. And they're like, here's your ticket, but you don't have a seat. And we're like, okay, she's six months pregnant. We really want to get back to the States. Um, so we, after all these things go on, we are getting ready to board. And they've given us a seat assignment. We put the ticket through the, um, the, the thing where it pops up and it beeps. And we go, oh, no. Because we're like among the last in the line. Um, it beeps, and we go, okay, what's coming next? And they said, oh, we have something else for you. And they handed us two first-class tickets for a flight from the Middle East all the way to Atlanta, all right? How many of you have ever flown first-class before? A couple of you. Oh, bless your hearts. It's so amazing. Uh, it is one of the few, few experiences in life that you're like, this isn't bad. Um, <laughs> um, we had just eaten dinner. We went ahead and we, we came and we found our seats. We are the very front seat of the plane. We had just spent two weeks hiking the Bible lands. We're tired. We're sweaty. We're sunburned. We weren't sweaty. We'd showered and stuff before, but uh, we're tired and um, we're, we're ready to, to rest. And the uh, flight attendant comes by and she says, can I interest you in some orange juice? And I said, yes, please. You know, like we hadn't even taken off yet. She's like, can I interest you in some mixed nuts? I said, yes, please. We had just eaten dinner. And like two hours later, she's like, would you like steak or lasagna? I said, steak would be fantastic. Um, we experienced something in first class that was totally unparalleled to what everyone else just about 10 feet behind us was experiencing. All right, back there, they're going, you know, they're trying to get around people and they're trying to have enough oxygen to breathe and all this kind of stuff. Um, they're finding their way to the bathrooms and they, they couldn't use the first class bathrooms because those were reserved for first class. Um, <laughs> all of this happened. And one of the things I realized is life is very different in first class than it is in coach. Very different. In fact, we got to the end of this flight and um, there was a gentleman seated up to our left and, and he goes, is this your first time flying first class? And we must have just had these smiles beaming off of our faces. Uh, there were people flying first class who this just seemed to be normal experience. Like, this is just what we do. We always fly first class. And we're like, did you see this over here? Did you see this over here? And um, he's like, did you, is this your first time? And we were like, yeah. He goes, I could tell. <laughs> the amazing thing is that in first class, you're separate from everyone else. You're separate from everyone else. And one of the problems in this early church community is Paul's writing to the Galatians as he's addressing a people who had grown up, Jewish, for example, who were separate from everyone else. And how do you put together something that is separate with something that is now called to be amongst the same family in the same community? We've talked about this already. In Galatians, one of the issues is that the gospel is being distorted. There's people who have come in and who have said, 
in, or, in order to experience life with Jesus, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but now you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. Paul's going to call it the works of the law in today's passage. And that, for some people, was part of the admission ticket into the community of faith. And Paul is going to say, that's not the true gospel. That's not the true gospel. And so we are going to look at this today. But here's your big idea. Life only comes from being in Christ. And if you're in Christ, whether you're Jew, you're Greek, you're slave, you're free, you're male, you're female, you are in Christ. And you are part of an incredible body where you're not distinguished by first class or second class. You're all on the same plane. Amen? All right. Would you stand with me for the reading of the scriptures? Galatians chapter 2, but when Cephas, that's just Peter, you know, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and he separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, that's Peter again, if you who are a Jew, you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, lead and guide us into what is right and what is true by your Spirit today. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon your truth so that we may go out and share this good news of Jesus with everyone in our lives. We pray for the working of your spirit to be powerful in our weakness today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so Paul is going to, we're going to look at this in three sections today. Paul is going to go ahead and he, he's going to relate a story of something that happened at the church at Antioch, okay? Antioch was a very important um, center for the church as it burst out into the rest of the Gentile world. In Antioch, um, Paul, Paul ministered and Barnabas also ministered, but he records a time where Cephas, uh, you might say Cephas, uh, I say Cephas, um, uh, but when Cephas came to Antioch, and Paul opposes him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, now, what's going on here? 
Paul is addressing or setting himself against Peter because Peter had separated himself as a Jewish follower of Jesus from the Gentile followers of Jesus. And he'd done this by, um, by not eating with them at the same table. And you're like, he just didn't want to have dinner? No, th- th- there's a whole cultural thing that is going on here. And, and it happens, um, the text says, because there's people... Um, who come in, and Peter before had regularly eaten with Gentiles, but um, he separated himself because, verse 12 says, um, he uh, feared those from the circumcision party. Um, These are likely people uh, who stressed Jewish ritual observance, you know, things like circumcision, as being essential to having table fellowship with the Jews, and especially, therefore, with God. Peter receives, in Acts chapters 10 and 11, we don't need to turn there, you can go back and read this later. In Acts chapters 10 and 11, Peter himself received this incredible vision from the Lord, and the Lord appears to him, he says, Peter, I want you to get up and kill and eat. And he was looking in this vision at all these animals that are unclean. And he goes, Lord, I've never killed or eaten anything like this before. Oh, God forbid I do it now. And And the point that God is making with him is that what I have called clean, you must not call common, all right? This is something Peter never engaged in. And he's not really giving him a lesson on, now you can go eat pork, Peter. He's giving him a lesson. He's prepping him for something that God is doing. And that is the gospel going to the Gentiles. Because at this point in time, there's a a grave separation between Jews and Gentiles in many ways. Um... God is trying to tell Peter that um, I, I want you to accept the Gentiles, whom you consider to be separate from you, because I have given them repentance. Um, in this context, in this story, we find that Peter is eating with Gentile believers. All right, Jewish believer, Gentile believer, they're sitting around the same table. It's much like this. Think about this picture. These are a bunch of Bedouin gathering together for a meal. Now, a meal in the first century context is not just I'm getting my uh, protein bar on the way to work or something like that. It's an experience to be shared together. It's an experience that when you engage in it, um, you're celebrating a feast. You're celebrating something going on in the life of one of your kids. You're sitting around a table or around the floor, and you're eating not just, and here's my plate, and here's my plate. It's very common to eat like this and have a central plate from which you all pull, and you're engaging in conversation. You're actually experiencing life is really what it is. It's kind of like when you gather around the table with your family. Think of a holiday meal where everything goes well, no one's stressed out about anything, no one's mad at, any, at anybody, and you just gather around and you enjoy life together. In, in my family uh, and in my in-laws' family, times around the table are just cherished times. They're, they're, they're times where we engage with one another in, in a very important way. You know, jokes are made, usually someone starts laughing, kids are doing all sorts of crazy things. We're experiencing life together. And in fact, in Jewish tradition, it, it is said that there is no meal that is complete without the opening of the scriptures. And there's no scripture, the study of scripture that's incomplete without having a meal together. Because this is a very central act within the life of a family, within the life of a community. And so Peter has separated himself from this experience. 
and in Jewish custom, it was very common not to engage with, in eating with Gentiles. And the reason is this. Um, as a Jew, you're called to observe certain dietary laws in Leviticus 11. Certain things you don't eat. Gentiles eat them. And so they wouldn't sit at the same table because they wouldn't want to, un, um, they wouldn't want to unintentionally break one of the commandments of the Torah. They, they, so they kept the separation between them. And the Jewish people were, were known for this. For example, the, um, the historian Josephus describes that it was a common criticism of Gentiles against the Jewish people. And, and this criticism was that they insisted upon living separate lives and separating and segregating themselves from the Gentiles. So the Jewish people had reason to do this. They, they wanted to keep themselves separate or holy as unto the Lord. But here you have Gentile believers coming into the church, and you're like, what do we do with this? Our practice has been, let's keep it separate. And now... Paul is saying to Peter, don't keep it separate. And you wonder if he said, hey, Peter, I've heard about this vision that God gave you. You know, this vision that even the Gentiles have been given repentance resulting in life. In fact, uh, Peter says it this way in Acts chapter 11, if God has done this, who am I to withhold their acceptance within the community? If he has given them repentance resulting in life, God is God, I am not, I'm going to submit to that and I'm going to welcome the Gentiles in. But Peter is facing this pressure because there's people from presumably Jerusalem who've come in and who've said, no, you shouldn't be doing that because you're a Jew and they're a Gentile. There was this idea of separation that went throughout the Jewish-Gentile relationship. Another way we see this, um, here's a photo of a, a reconstruction of the temple complex. And actually, at the Israel Museum, they have this whole thing, it's probably about as big as the stage area, um, where it's a, re, it's a model of, a, of the first century Jerusalem. And so you can kind of follow, okay, here's the temple, here are the courts, here's the upper city, here's the lower city, here's the city of David, here's the Hinnom Valley, here's the Kidron Valley, all these things. It's, it's amazing to watch. And this is a, a photo of that. Um, and so you'll see here, you'll see the gates going into the temple area, and then you'll see this small um, balustrade, you could call it. Um, I'll, I'll highlight it here for you. That right there. Um, and it's a wall that existed to help separate certain parts of the temple. Because in the temple, there were certain places you could go if you were Jewish. But there's other places, for example, if you're a Jewish woman, you couldn't go into the court of the men. There was a court for the Gentiles, but the Gentiles couldn't go past a certain point. And archaeologically, they have found these inscriptions that go along with this. I can show it to you sometime if you want. And these inscriptions essentially say... Um, if you're a Gentile and you go past this column here, this balustrade, this, this gate keeping you from going into parts of the temple that as a Gentile you were not supposed to go into, your life was potentially taken. You know, they, they essentially say, if you go past this, your life is in your own hands because that is not good. In fact, when, when Paul is accused in the latter chapters of the book of Acts um, for taking someone with him who was a Gentile up into the portions of the temple, it's not that the, the person couldn't go to the temple, it's that they couldn't go past a certain point. And by doing so, was violating Jewish practice. And so you have this thing, and it's called the serug. Can you say the serug? Sarig, okay? That's what that wall is called. And you didn't go past it if you were a Gentile, but you could if you were of the right distinction. You know? if, you, if you were a Jew, for example, or if you had become a proselyte to Judaism, and the, the last action of proselyte, 
proselyting to Judaism or becoming a Jew um, for a man is circumcision. All right, that's, that's the big picture going back to all of the, the teachings back in the Torah. So you have here, even within Jewish tradition, don't go past this point if you are a Gentile. But Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. And this wall is likely what he is referring to in this context. I'll just read it to you really quick. It says this, But now, in the Messiah Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Verse 14, For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And a lot of people talk about, this is the dividing wall. It's this, you can't go up into the temple to worship God if you're a Gentile. You can't go offer a sacrifice unless you're Jewish. And what Christ has done, as he said, my, the atonement for your sins is paid full by my blood. And whether you are Jew or you are Gentile, you can come to me by faith. You don't go through a temple system in order to be made right with God. You go to your one high priest. You go to your one mediator, Jesus Christ. That's the picture. And that's the picture that they're wrestling with in Galatians because they're saying, but we've grown up in a system where as Jews, we've kept separate. And Paul is saying, you're not separate. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. If you're in Christ, you're a part of one body. And life comes from being in Christ, whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile. So Paul opposes Peter publicly because what Peter is doing goes against all the clear teaching of, of the Lord Jesus to accept these Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they had ag earlier agreed upon this. And we looked at this last week in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Um, James and Cephas and John, who were recognized as pillars, they acknowledged that God had given grace to Paul to go preach the gospel to the nations. And, and Peter's specific um, calling was to go preach the gospel to the Jews. And they gave him the right hand of fellowship, and they're saying, man, we are in this together. You have your mission, we have ours, but we are all about the same message, sharing Jesus with people who do not have a relationship with him. And that's what's going on. So, so Peter, though, after that experience, he comes back and he later denies that uh, with the pressure that is exuded from those who had come from the circumcision party. And he, he becomes what the text calls a hypocrite. Um, and this hypocrisy had set an example for other Messianic Jews as well. People like Barnabas. And if you go to Acts, Barnabas has an incredible ministry of teaching and preaching Christ within this church in, um, in Antioch. And so even Barnabas, though, he's looking at Peter, who's a church leader, and he's saying, well, Peter's separating himself. I need to separate myself, too. And Paul comes in, and he publicly says, y'all need to stop it. And he poses him to his face, because what Peter was doing was demonstrating to Jew and to Gentile alike, you guys are in two different classes of the plane. But the thing is, is that they're not. In Christ, he himself is our peace. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And if you're in Christ, you are brothers and sisters. Live like it. Accept one another. Sit at the table together because that is what God has done for you in Christ. Now, we talk about hip, uh, being a hypocrite in first century context. Man, we could just take that word hypocrite and begin to apply it to our lives sometimes, right? Right? 
How many times have you heard, man, maybe this Jesus thing is true, but if I look at the church and I see the people, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Guilty. Guilty. Part of the life of faith is recognizing there are so many things in which we fall short. But our identity is not based upon when we fall short. Our our identity is based upon Christ. We are called to be brothers and sisters. We're called to serve God, and many times we will fall short. And yet those are not opportunities for us to find our pride or our identity in what we do. It's again for us to go back to the gospel and say, God, give me the strength to walk out your teaching for your glory. Think about this in the church. One of the things we can be known for in the church sometimes, just in general, are cliques. Sometimes we may not even realize that with relationships, we've excluded people. Maybe because they're different than us. Maybe because they come from a different background than us. Maybe our personalities just kind of are like oil and water. But in Christ, we're new creations. We're called to gather together. We're called to be together as brothers and sisters. And that's an important thing. That's an important thing to find that sense of family. And that family is defined not by what our past is. That family is defined by what Christ has done for us. I want you to consider something this week. Are there people in your life whom you've kept out at the fringes? Where you've sought to put up this dividing wall? By the power of God, would you consider just kicking down that wall and going to them this week? Maybe you don't realize uh, maybe, maybe we don't realize sometimes all these walls that we build up that separate us from other people. Could, could you this week go to someone who is not a part of your normal crew and engage them in meaningful relationship? Maybe that's writing them a card. Maybe that's sending them a text message. Maybe that's giving them a call. Whatever's appropriate for you, but, but recognize who they are in Christ and seek to reach out to them as God would lead and guide you. Who could you share your life with and experience life with in Christ? Because in a plane, you're all in the same boat, all right? You're all in the same, well, actually, you're all in the same plane, but (laughs) we go on, transition, to the next section of verses, Uh, verses 15 through 18. The pilots, of which we have a few in our church, are going, he just called our plane a boat? What is going on? Verses 15 through 18, Uh, this is a well-written-about portion of text in the history of Christian doctrine. Um, We're going to simplify it a little bit. There's a couple of technical things here that I want you to understand. Um, The big point of these verses, verses 15 through 18 of Galatians chapter 2, is this. Legalism never justifies, let me say that again, legalism never justifies, only faith does. And Paul's likely continuing in his writing here this, this experience, describing this experience of the conversation he's had with Peter. Um, some commentators think it goes all the way to the end of chapter 2. Some people think it goes like to verse uh, 17 or so. I, I think he's probably carrying on the same theme because he's recognizing what they're facing in Galatians is not unlike what he addressed with Peter and Antioch sometime before. And Paul's going to state that he, as a Jew by birth, he understands that no one can be justified apart from the Messiah Jesus. Now, justification is a super big word, and it simply means this. It has to do with being declared righteous 
or being declared acquitted or being treated as righteous. All right? So it means by, um, um, whatever the word I'm looking for is, it means by, um, <laughs> I hate it when I do this. Uh, it means, anyway, that um, what is going on here is that there's people who are wrong, right? To be declared righteous means that you have done something wrong. And we call that in the Christian tradition and the history of the Bible, we call that sin. <laughs> we, we call that sin. And so being declared righteous means that God is doing something that you and I could not do for ourselves. We've been acquitted of the offenses against us because we have sinned against God. And God could rightly look at that and he could rightly judge us for that. But he looks on us through Christ when we come to faith in Jesus and he goes, you've trusted the blood of my son to cover your sin. I now declare you righteous. Think about that. To go from being on that defendant spot in a courtroom and being separated and lost from God, and there is no defense you can make, I'll do better next time, or um, any other thing. (laughs) There's nothing you can say to make yourself right before God, and God says, because you have trusted the blood of my son to cover your sin, I am now going to pass over you, and I'm going to declare you righteous. Not only that, he's going to declare you his child. That's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. So that's the idea of justification. But he uses two other phrases that are really important. He uses the phrase, works of the law, and uh, he uses the phrase, faith in Jesus Christ. I will spare you all of the ink that is spilled on these two phrases in the commentaries. The idea is this. Works of the law does not refer to maintaining Jewish practices. Okay? It doesn't mean... You know, work of the law is not necessarily keeping Sabbath or being circumcised. Here's what a work of the law is. It, it is short for finding our identity in something that we have done rather than in what Christ has done on our behalf. A work of the law is anything that we use as a way to um, hedge our bets and make sure that we'll be right before God at the end of the age. It's, it's what we think we can add to what Christ has done. You know, he contrasts it this way. Um, you have works of the law and you have faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine faith in Jesus Christ as being like this chair. If I have faith in this chair, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to put my feet up, and I'm resting completely on this chair. To add a work of the law, and that can be something, you know, going to church every single week and not missing one. Never missing your Bible reading. It, it could be, I'm not going to say that word, or I'm not going to smoke, or whatever it is. It, it, a work of the law is saying, I'm going to rest on Christ, but now I'm going to hold on to something else because I want to make sure that if my chair legs fall down, I can still catch myself as I go down. Does that make sense? It's adding something to what Christ has already done. And that work of the law, for this context, was people saying you know what, in addition to your faith in Christ, you have to become a Jew, all right? You, you, you have to keep Shabbat. You have to engage in um, becoming a Jew, which the end of that is circumcision, if you're a man. 
all right? You need to take upon yourself all these commandments of the Torah. You're going to find your identity there, is essentially what these Judaizers, is one word that's used here, are, are, are saying. And Paul says that is not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is in Christ alone. We come by faith in Christ alone. The other word you could use for works of the law here is legalistic acts of righteousness or legalism. We know legalism well because many of us have experienced that at one point or another in our life. Legalism, and I love the way that um, Pastor Warren Wearsby once described it. He says, legalism does not mean the setting of spiritual standards, okay? It's a helpful distinction. It doesn't mean that there are no spiritual standards. Legalism means worshiping these standards and thinking that we are spiritual because we obey them. It's finding our identity in what we do instead of what Christ has done. Now, when we find our identity in what Christ has done, we are definitely called to walk a different way. But that's not what Paul's addressing right here. He's going to address that, especially beginning in chapter 5, when he's going to say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's going to call this community to love one another. He's going to call them to walk out this practice of what it means to give of themselves for someone else without expecting anything in return. But you don't do that as a follower of Jesus to maintain your status before God. Your status, your identity is always based upon what Christ has done for us. Amen? Because if it's based on anything else, guess what? The table's going to go down too. If I'm trusting this or if I'm trusting something else, I will always be short of the mark of God. If I try to add to my faith in Christ, what Christ has done for me, anything else. Now, let me ask you this question. Are there things in your life that you see as central to your identity? That's where it starts getting on my life, at least. Your abilities, your talents, things that you see as who you are, your accomplishments, your letters behind your name for a degree, what you have created in life, even spiritual things. Yeah, well, God has given me this. Well, your identity is not based in all those things. Our identity is always and forever based in what Christ has done for us. I grew up in a faith tradition um, that, that, that loves the Lord, and they observed certain things in order to love God. But as part of um, observing these things, one of the things that's really easy, I remember growing up, was not being pulled into, wait, am I doing this in order to have a certain standing before God? It's really easy to find our identity in doing religious observant things. When you think of those things in your life, do you do them as unto the Lord? Or do you do them as a way to find justification before God? Where might you be tempted to be legalistic in your spiritual walk, to, to find your identity in something other than what Christ has done for you? Where might you be tempted to judge others in their spiritual walk? Sometimes legalism is expressed not so much about what we think about us, because sometimes we're willing to give ourselves more grace than we're willing to give our brother or sister. Where do you place a, an identity marker on someone else's life that says, if you don't do this, then you're really not loved by God. That's what Paul's addressing here. 
and we face this all the time. Again, that does not mean that there are not standards and that there are not um, scriptural imperatives for us to walk out. But part of Paul's argument in Galatians is you don't walk it out by just becoming better in your life. You walk it out by being in relationship with God and having the power of his spirit in your life because that's where you find joy. That's where you find meaning. That's where you find life in Christ and in Christ alone. So if our identity and our worth are not based upon human standards, they're based upon what Christ has done for us. Um, what then does it mean to really experience life? What does it mean to really live? In, in these last couple verses of chapter 2, Paul is going to reference the law. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. Uh, this whole letter just kind of goes together so well. We're going to talk a little bit more about the law next week. And in chapter 3, he's actually going to say that the law has served as a guardian until Christ. We'll talk about that. And, and that the law has played a role in understanding how God's people were to walk with him. But when someone places their faith solely in Christ, not in their own performance or in their legalistic acts of righteousness, Scripture teaches here that they have become crucified in Christ. And it is no longer I who live, Paul says, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith. I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I showed you this photo last week. Uh, this is by Dr. Tim Gombas out at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. He puts it this way. In Galatians 1, verse 4, Paul talks about how um, Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. The rescue plan is effective immediately when you trust in Christ. Not that you're taken out of the world necessarily at that moment, um, but that you become what Paul then will call in chapter 6 a new creation. And this process happens when, when we become crucified in Christ, when the old way of our living dies to itself, and it dies to those expectations, and it dies to those things in which it used to seek identity. When we die to ourselves, what happens is we're raised to walk in a new way of living. And that happens when we trust Jesus, his death and his resurrection on our behalf. It's not without significance that in the early church, when you become a follower of Jesus, baptism shortly follows. Because this picture of baptism is this. We often say in, in the water, um, buried in the likeness of his death. But you're raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is this symbol that, that, that pictures my old way of living is not what dominates what I do because that was dominated by the present evil age. Rather, what God has invited me into and called me to walk out by his grace is now this process of becoming a new creation in Christ where Jesus' power, where Jesus' provision become that which drives me with everything I am. In Jesus, our identity changes. So things like our ethnicity, our gender, our personality, they, they don't become irrelevant. You know, for Jew and for Gentile, they, their upbringing was not irrelevant. You know, you still had Jews, you still had Gentiles. But what brings them together now is Messiah and what Christ has done for them. They become new creations and they become part of the one family of God. They're their distinguishing marks of their life become secondary to being in Christ. Not unimportant, but secondary. And they're called to walk then and to live in a community where you go, okay, how do I love my brother who's a Jewish follower of Jesus? 
and they keep Shabbat, and they engage in the feasts as unto the Lord. How do I love my Gentile brother who doesn't do some of that stuff? And that's what this early church is having to learn to walk through. And that's why Acts 15 is really helpful in the whole context of this conversation. Um, Jesus, though, is the only one who makes us righteous before God. But not only does he make us righteous, he gives us the only possible way to live righteously. Paul says it this way in verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, okay? Grace is fundamental to this because he says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. We, 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 we live by God's grace. He'll say it this way, the verse prior to, I now, the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith. I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. What, what we are invited into is a life with Jesus, a walk with Jesus, a relationship, a relationship that, that is marked not by, oh, here's what you can do for me, but is marked by friendship, closeness, respect, intimacy. This is applicable to the believer regardless of their background because in Christ there's not a second-class person. We, we are all all accepted and loved as God's children. All who come by, by grace through faith in the Messiah were joined together as the people of God, the church, and this is what unites us because it's in Jesus that we find life. Quick illustration of, of no illustration is perfect, okay? Uh, but, but a quick illustration of then what does it mean to walk this out in relationship with Jesus? Um, Several weeks back, uh, several weeks back now, uh, my family and I got to experience what many of you have experienced, a brief period of isolation. <laughs> uh, we, we were isolated, we had some sickness going on in our house, and so we stayed away from everyone and everything for the timed period of days. And um, during that time, in fact, on day two, um, I had some things in my house break, and I went, oh no, because I'm not Mr. Fix-It. Uh, not at all. My dad is incredibly gifted in that kind of stuff. My grandpa was. My brother is. I miss that ability in my life. And uh, that's okay. But I go, okay, I think I can get things to where they're not going to cause damage, but it means that we can't use certain things for the next period of days. So I ended up talking to my brother one night, and my brother's really gifted in that kind of stuff, and we're both very different people, but yet we get along really well. And he goes, Jeremy... <laughs> you can fix that. And I go, John, no, I, no, I can't. Like, that's, that's not me. I'm going to make it worse, and then I'm going to have to call a plumber, and then they can't come in, and I'm going, what do I do? And he goes, Jeremy, let me send you a couple of things that you need in order to get this job done. So he sends me, five, ten minutes later, he sends me a couple of how-to videos on YouTube. God bless YouTube for those kind of things. And, um, and so he sends me those things. I'm getting familiarized. I'm just trying to do the, I was paralyzed with what to do. How, how do I deal with this. And so he sends me these things, and then he sends me all the links I needed from the local hardware store to purchase what I need, and I had a dear friend who, who um, gratefully dropped them off. So I'm, I'm going about trying to do some more than basic home repair in my mind, and during this time, I'm going, oh no, I hope this doesn't make it worse. And so what do I do? I FaceTime my brother. I'm like, all right, here's what I'm looking at. Does this make sense? He goes, yes. Oh, no, go ahead and do this instead. And he's giving me all this play-by-play. -play. Um, I would talk to him at, like, noon. I'd talk to him at 6. I'd talk to him at, like, 11 o'clock at night. Because when you're brothers, you can really um, wake him up at any point in time if you, would, if you want to. That's part of being family. The point is this. 
When I was unable to do what I needed to do, I was not alone. I had someone who was willing to walk beside me and to walk in relationship with me. And when I was absolutely, in my own skill set, unable to make happen what I needed to, they went, nope, do that, okay, now do that, okay, now you're good. It's kind of like that with God, right? Not every analogy is perfect. Walking with God pictures that, though. There are things that we experience in our life, and we go, I, God, I don't know how I'm going to do that. And God says, don't worry, I'm with you. As Brian read this morning from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? How do I not fear evil in a world where I don't know what to do half the time? He says, because, David says, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head with oil in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. And he ends by this, he ends by saying this, surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What God invites us into is relationship. God does not just leave us to say, all right, now go walk out your Christian experience without me. He says, by the way, I want to walk with you. But one of the first things we do is we say, no, God, I can walk by myself. God wants to walk with you this week in whatever you are facing. That may be an incredible high. That may be an incredible low. But can I remind you, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. He wants to be your strength. In fact, Paul will say it this way in another portion of text. He will say, my weakness is perfected, or my weakness is made strong when Christ is with me. Jeremy paraphrase. Okay? Our weaknesses in Christ become those greatest moments of strength because in those moments, as we walk with God and as we're obedient to God's word, we're obedient to God's spirit, and we're enjoying life in Christ, our lives become, hey, this is not my power that is doing this. It's not my power to love my wife as Christ loved the church and to give himself up for her. It's not my power to be kind and compassionate with someone who is less than that with me. It's not in my power that I'm going to be able to muster up goodness and mercy and love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All these things that are fruits of the Spirit are just that. They're the outworkings of a partnership and relationship that we have, both as people and as a community with God. And that's what God calls you into. That's what God calls me into. Regardless of our background, regardless of our past, regardless of, in this context, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're called to walk the same way in Christ because true life is experienced in Christ. Now, what do we do with that? 
We'll talk about this more in coming weeks. But experiencing life in Christ begins by denying ourselves. It begins by saying, God, I am trusting you with this issue. God, you may call me to do something that in my own flesh, in my own nature, I don't want to do. But God, I want to love you and I want to love others. God, I need you to work through me. Where in your life this week, as you leave in just a moment here, where in your life this week is God calling you to not walk by your definition of what is right and what is good, but rather he's saying, listen to my word, hear my voice, and let's walk this together. Let's pray. God, we come this morning and we're all from different backgrounds this week. Some of us have come from, from great challenge, whether it be in, in work or whether it be in school, whether it be in relationships with family or, um, God, maybe we're just struggling to understand how you're going to provide what we need today. And yet, God, you call us to trust you day by day, to, to not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries about itself. And yet, God, we need your grace again today. God, we want to walk not by our own strength, but in the power of your Spirit. And God, we give our lives again to you today for that purpose. Where there is anger and strife and division and jealousy and hatred, God, forgive us for those things. We want to walk as the new people we are in Christ. We want to walk as your children. God, Grow in us this week by your spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God, may these things be that which the world around us sees when they encounter us. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it goes countercultural. God, help us to walk those out in your power and in your provision. We thank you, God, that even when we fall short, you love us still the same. We bless you, Lord God. You are king over all. You are sovereign over all creation, and yet you have come to dwell with us. What an incredible gift. May you receive all honor and glory and majesty through your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616 772 4377.